Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Hello, uh, I'm Alan Olmsted, the director of the Institute of Governmental Affairs, and it's indeed a pleasure to welcome you to today's program, Understanding the Financial Crisis. Uh, I would like to first recognize and thank the many co-sponsors who joined IGA to make this event possible. Uh, these co-sponsors include the Center for the Evolution of the Global Economy, uh, the Center for History, Society, and Culture, the Center for Investor Welfare and Corporate Responsibility, and the Graduate School of Management. We have a distinguished and informed uh, set of panelists. Uh, I'd like to start off by introducing Alan Taylor, who will speak first. Alan Taylor is Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for the Evolution of the Global Economy. He is also a member of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Professor Taylor's research specialty is in international economics with an emphasis on the global economy and financial crises. Uh, Professor Brad Barber will speak second. Professor Barber is in the Graduate School of Management and he is the director of the Center for Investor Welfare and Corporate Responsibility. Professor Barber's research focusing on investor psychology and the stock market has been widely disseminated in prestigious academic journals and in the popular media. The final speaker will be Professor Eric Roshway of the History Department, who also directs the Center for History, Society, and Culture. Uh, he has written extensively on American economic and political history and can offer an informed historical perspective on the current crisis. Uh, I would like to recommend, if I can make a short plug, Eric, uh, his, his most recent book, The Great Depression and the New Deal. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure this is available at a discount to uh, the, the audience. <laughs> um, each panelist will speak for about 10 minutes, uh, and then there will be time for questions and answers uh, from the audience. Uh, we had planned a fourth panelist, Professor Paul Bergen of the Economics Department, whose specialty is in international macroeconomics, uh, but uh, he has taken ill and cannot join us. So Professor Taylor has uh, talked to Professor Bergen and uh, seen his prepared remarks and will try to incorporate some of the main points in his comments. Um, I noted we will take questions from the audience. Will you please uh, Try to keep your questions uh, short and direct them to a specific panelist. Uh, I uh, will insist that they be kept short because I have to repeat them so that they will be heard on the tape uh, when uh, this is uh, aired. Um, so with that introduction, uh, the, I turn the floor over to Professor Taylor. Uh, I was going to talk first about origins of the crisis, uh, then about the buildup, uh, particularly in 2008, um, then about the policy responses we've recently seen and, uh, and what might happen next. Okay. So on origins, I want to talk about um, two aspects, one international, which will uh, relate to some of the comments that uh, Paul Bergen uh, would have made, and I'll, I'll reference those, and also about uh, domestic conditions and in particular the housing bubble. So first of all, we've been living through a remarkable time of very low interest rates, and this uh, is perhaps best known by the nickname that uh, Ben Bernanke, the Federal Reserve Chairman, has given to it as the, uh, the, the era of the savings glut, 
Where are all these savings coming from? And needless to say, not Americans. <laughs> uh, uh, those savings have been coming from the rest of the world and principally from emerging markets and poorer countries, which at first sight looks like a little bit of a paradox. You'd think that if anything, they would be uh, borrowing from us to invest in their own countries uh, to grow more rapidly. Uh, yet there are some fundamental reasons why that hasn't been happening. Uh, perhaps there are uh, uh, not so many profitable opportunities in those countries for investment uh, as one might think. But in addition, those countries are financially very fragile. And in recent research um, with uh, some collaborators, I've been arguing that a lot of the reason these countries have been buying our assets, in particular uh, treasuries, is that they view them as a safe haven and uh, that they want to have large piles of cash on hand just in case there's a financial crisis. <laughs> looking, looking rather smart now, aren't they? So if you take the example of Korea, in 1997, Korea didn't have enough reserves to stave off a, a, a curtailment of foreign lending, so a sudden stop in lending, uh, no capital inflows, uh, nor to prevent what might have been a large capital flight uh, by domestic residents to put their money overseas. They went to the IMF, they got some help, but very limited help. And one of the lessons that a country like Korea learned was that you might not be able to count on the global lender of last resort. You might need to have your own um, war chest of, of reserves, uh, a, a cash hoard for a rainy day. And that put a great deal of pressure on countries like Korea, the other Asian emerging markets, many other developing countries, to hoard large amounts of treasury bills, which meant they wanted to save and they wanted to lend money to us. They wanted to buy our paper. So that has created a demand for U.S. assets, lowering our interest rates. It's uh, encouraged uh, um, borrowers in this country with lower interest rates and in many other countries. And it's also encouraged lenders or intermediaries in this country to perhaps take on more risk in terms of the, the quest for yield. If you want a decent return, it wasn't enough to hold treasuries anymore because the yield on treasuries, I mean, a year ago was already pretty low. It's practically zero now. That kind of environment will tend to drive up the price of all assets um, and encourage perhaps uh, more, more lending, more borrowing, which is fine if you can manage the risk, but it's not okay if a bubble develops. So you know, I think that's one of the things uh, to maybe try and hold in balance here. The savings glut is probably here to stay. Financial fragility is still here in the global economy, as we can see right now. Developing countries will still want to have their war chests of reserves if they're going to be able to manage this crisis and future crises. Right? The Korean currency lost 10% uh, yesterday, and there's been a lot of capital outflow from that country. We're seeing similar uh, uh, developments in Eastern Europe and other emerging markets. Um, Mexico spent like $7 billion of reserves uh, last week, uh, possibly in a futile effort. So this kind of um, aspect of the global sort of financial, uh, the global financial geometry might be here to stay, but we need to know, uh, we need to learn how to manage it better, particularly in the developed countries. We'd like to live in a low interest rate world. There's nothing wrong with that. It might be good. It's probably quite desirable. And bubbles can certainly happen in low and high interest rate worlds. We had a housing crisis uh, 15 or 20 years ago. We've had you know uh, bubbles uh, in asset markets before, even when interest rates were high. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that the savings glut and the low interest rate environment created the current crisis. So what did? Well, uh, the, the sort of fantasy, the housing bubble fantasy uh, in this country and many other countries, the belief that house prices would rise forever. Right? Uh, so uh, the desire, uh, perhaps the, the slight mania to buy expensive houses, uh, extract cash from the house through home equity loans, perhaps uh, going even into flipping and holding houses as an investment vehicle, 
that was sort of out of line with fundamentals. And you could see that, as you, if you've, you've probably seen many charts of house prices and underlying rents diverging rapidly in the last few years. So I think some kind of a bubble uh, was clearly developing there. And unfortunately, you know, not only were lenders, uh, borrowers deceiving themselves, so were the lenders, right? Uh, and there were some special features why maybe this got out of hand a lot in the United States, specifically the no-recourse aspect of mortgages in this country. It means essentially that borrowers have a, a put option. Even if they buy a house, if it goes into negative equity, you can dump it and send the keys in the mail to the bank. So uh, there's pure upside there. And the only way that lenders uh, can protect against that is if they bear in mind the fundamentals in the market, calculate the risk of the put option. And there have been various web posts recently by people using sort of online calculators to figure out what the risks were of this happening. And banks were seemingly unaware of that. Um, and also banks can require capital cushions. But of course, LTV ratios were going higher and higher. Down payments were going smaller and smaller. So the cushion was getting um, er eroded. Now, it's also a highly nonlinear process. If, if people go into negative equity, they don't immediately mail in their keys to the bank, right? If you've got 0 or 5% negative equity, you might say, well, I, I can still afford these payments. I'll struggle through, uh, and I won't go through the vast transaction costs of moving. But if we move towards a world where housing prices fall by 10, 15, 20%, then, you know, people just give up, right? And a lot of people are starting to do that. So that's, that's one of our serious problems right now. There may be overshoot on the downside as well as on the upside. But that's really a failure of risk management um, at the level of the banks. What's driving that, you might say, and I think it's partly bad incentives, right? Uh, for the bankers, it's all about commissions and volume, and worrying about what might happen next year or the year after is perhaps of little concern to them. Or is it? Well, um, there I'd like to turn to the, uh, the securitization question. Um, uh, in principle, it all looked very nice, right? Because, you know, what happens if you've got a load of no-recourse mortgages packaged into securities uh, and intermediaries just hand them off to uh, you and me and, you know, the, uh, the little old lady in Pasadena or in Reykjavik or, or wherever... Uh, no problem, right? The risk has been dispersed. Securitization is a great idea. Uh, and if anything, the problem is that there's been not too little of it, but uh, not too much of it, but rather too little, right? Because what was happening inside the banks, uh, again, because perhaps of dis distorted incentives within the financial institutions, is they wanted to have some skin in the game, um, perhaps to persuade the credit, agency, credit rating agencies, who had troubles of their own here, because they were insiders who were being paid, uh, the banks wanted to show that as underwriters of these securities, they stood behind them and believed in them, believed in them. Uh, and so they held on to some of that in their own portfolio. And that started to build and build and build. Uh, so they were not only uh, deceiving the ultimate buyers of the securities, they were sort of partially deceiving themselves. Uh, they were uh, playing a game that could explode in the end, but which was providing some very high returns in the meantime as they took on these high-yielding securities. Um, so there's a famous internal memo at Lehman earlier, in this year, in, earlier this year, some high-ranking high manager, managing director, just writing to everyone saying, why did we get so exposed? Good question. <laughs> why did you get so exposed? A bit late to be, uh, to be asking that. So the thinking, I think, earlier, uh, late in 2007, earlier this year, was, okay, everything's been securitized and dispersed. Maybe that spreads the risk around. Maybe the policymakers can just handle this with conventional tools. Tools. The Fed might have to uh, supply some extra liquidity. We might have to get creative. 
Homeowners won't be extracting cash from the house, using the house like an ATM. Maybe there'll be a minor macroeconomic impact, but hopefully the problems will be contained. But then it gradually became clearer that financial institutions, major ones, systemically important ones, had kept too much of this trash on their own balance sheets, right? Or in off-balance sheet vehicles. The trouble is, of course, there's no such thing as an off-balance sheet vehicle. Everything's ultimately on somebody's balance sheet, and that was just an accounting ruse. So it's not a problem if you've got a lot of no-recourse mortgages that are about to crash and they're widely dispersed. That would be, you know, risk-sharing. Um, but you've got a big problem if a lot of those are concentrated on important financial institutions. And that's where we ended up in the second half of this year as the size of these impaired assets on banks' balance sheets uh, became, it became clear that they were very large. Right? And you could tell that because banks wouldn't trust each other. They wouldn't lend to each other. Uh, they were trying to restrict credit, pull back their own credit lines so as to deleverage and to build up their credit relative to their balance sheet, their capital relative to their balance sheet, so that they could uh, survive this, uh, this turn of events. So there was a major evaporation of trust, and then banks ceased to fulfill uh, their, their social function as intermediaries. There was just no credit flowing through them to the real economy, to quote Main Street, right? Uh, it was getting very difficult uh, in August and September, given the spreads on credit and given the low volume of credit, even for the real economy to finance itself through the banking system. Um, there was contagion. It was hard to tell what was a good bank and what was a bad bank. No one was quite sure. The banks weren't sure. Um, spreads started to explode. And the Fed was really, you know, uh, desperately uh, pushing back, trying to hold back this problem by cutting interest rates a lot, uh, but as though, although the Fed was cutting interest rates tremendously, the actual lending rates were remaining very high because the spread between what the banks could fund themselves out from the Fed and what they were willing to lend out was, was just becoming astronomic. And then in September, um, everything hit the fan with Lehman failing and AIG failing, and uh, the, the sort of financial sense of terror uh, just grew to an astronomic level. Uh, there was practically no credit to the real economy. Many uh, corporations were unable to, uh, to borrow at all, and policymakers had to act uh, quite dramatically. Let me talk about the, the, the first reaction and where we are now. The first reaction was the Paulson plan, uh, TARP version 1, which was, I, I think we all now realize was, was a bit of a joke. It wasn't a serious document. It was perhaps a document as it presented as a basis for negotiation, but it was extremely weak. It just said, we buy bad assets. Well, how does that work? Then Ben Bernanke revealed that it would work if we overpaid for those bad assets. So it was basically a, a cash gift to Wall Street for their, for their bad behavior. And still it wasn't clear how it worked, because for every dollar we injected on the balance sheet, well, we only injected a dollar if we overpaid by a dollar. And it wasn't clear that that would any, spill over into any new lending. Um, there was certainly no upside to the taxpayer on, in, on any, any part of those transactions, and there could have been considerable downside. It was only going to work if we were overpaying, if we were buying rubbish. Um, there was certainly no guarantee that banks would clean up their balance sheets, and there was a risk that they would continue not to realize their losses, and we would continue with a zombie banking system that would not function. Um, so where did we get after that? We got TARP version 2 after a week of intense uh, argument in Congress, a lot of uh, lobbying from uh, economists who, uh, for once, were actually mostly in agreement with each other, that a better plan would be to inject capital to make equity purchases. Um, the plan ended up having lots of other junk tacked on, like limits to executive pay, which may have been a bit of a distraction. 
And this seemed better than lending, uh, just buying the, the risky assets off the bank's balance sheets. Because if you inject a dollar of capital, uh, banks can then lend a multiple of that, and leverage isn't going to go down to nothing. Uh, so banks will presumably lend five, eight, maybe ten dollars for every dollar you inject in equity. Now, there were still weaknesses with this plan relative to alternatives such as the UK plan. Uh, we, the US taxpayer, have a very weak upside. We're only getting 5% dividends rising to 9% on these capital injections. They're preferred shares. They are senior to common stock, which gives us some slight seniority relative to other uh, equity. Uh, and we get some upside by uh, about 15% via the option to purchase, um, uh, given by warrants, uh, to purchase common stock. But we're not going to get any voting rights, which we would have had with common stock and which I would have preferred. We're not going to have any control over the fu future bad actions of these banks. Uh, there's very little dilution here, given the limited upside and the fact that we're buying preferred shares. Uh, and why is that? Uh, one of the uh, things we ought to do, I think, is, is dilute. That would be uh, what common stock would do, and it would certainly uh, address uh, moral hazard. It would, it would punish bad behavior, and it would give us more upside. And uh, people say, well, you have to be nice to capital here because, you know, you don't want to scare private capital away. Well, the private capital you don't want to scare away is the private capital that would come investing in the future, not... Uh, capital that was invested in the past. So it's kind of like a, a developing country default situation. You want to wipe the slate clean and be sure you've wiped it clean so that you'll encourage new people to come in. Uh, what else is weak about the plan? No one's been fired. If you look at the UK, you've got some very senior people being fired and, and taken off the boards and management of these organizations. We're not doing that. So, you know, I just worry about this. I worry that, therefore, we might need a stronger, more decisive plan in the future. We might need to more decisively kill zombie banks we might need to be more aggressive about forcing them to mark to market their terrible securities because as long as they can continue um, not marking to market and pretending that they've got a value where they haven't, we'll continue to have a credit market freeze. I also worry about the fact that this extends to uh, investment banks like uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley who are not true commercial banks. I know they just pretended to become commercial banks, but that was largely to get under the authority's umbrella of protection. And, you know, I don't know why that is. Um, you know, it just seems like the Treasury is, uh, is sort of palling around with Goldman Sachs here, and, I, and one can't imagine why. But I think, <laughs> I think the authorities have to be very careful here not to look like they're, they're favoring their old friends, right? So I really worry that we need to stop gambles for redemption by having preferred stock. It, it does encourage risk-taking, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the management, which owns a lot of stock, and other stockholders will just want to will realize that theirs is the least senior claim, and they, they might want to take crazy risks to try and beef up uh, the price of their common stock. And uh, the other worry is that, you know, we won't be able to, uh, we won't be able to control those risks. So um, what next? Um, well, we're taking some steps. I hope these will help, uh, but we may need a stronger, more decisive plan that forces write-downs and gets us out of the woods. Uh, we might need the FDIC to be empowered to do more to, um, uh, to kill bad banks mercilessly, and some of these could be very big banks, you know. Uh, and uh, we need more speed bankruptcies. Um, ultimately, though, we'll need to regulate. We'll have to have higher capital requirements, probably. And we'll have to think basically very carefully about what is and isn't a bank. Where do we draw a circle around the banking system? Because there are many other shadow financial banking organizations that are intermediaries, hedge funds, and other providers of credit uh, where one could imagine similar problems perhaps emerging soon, uh, credit cards and other area. Uh, what else do we need to do while trying to clean up that mess? We have to try and limit the spread to the real economy. So that's what policymakers are now doing, like the Fed extending 
credit to firms, possibly next to states and municipalities, the Treasury as well, uh, lending uh, directly into the commercial paper market. Perhaps we'll have to tar target LIBOR and other market rates rather than just the discount rate. And we'll have to continue this until the banks are healthy, and we don't know how long that will take. Um, and then hopefully we can um, um, disinvest and, and fully privatize them again. But uh, one really doesn't know how long that process might take. Uh, so what's the prognosis going forward? Probably a, a very deep uh, recession, a world recession. It's clear this problem has spilled over to other countries, and Paul talked about that, but I'm probably out of time, so I won't go into that. Uh, but that's going to mean a coordinated response across many countries. There are hopeful signs that that has been happening uh, in the last week or two. Coordinated monetary and fiscal policy expansion globally, uh, and along with a, a global rethink uh, of the financial architecture. So... I covered most of my points there, despite not having slides, and I, I hope it was helpful. Thank you, Alan. Our next presenter is Brad Barber, professor of finance in this Graduate School of Management. Uh, thanks very much, Alan. And um, Alan, um, those comments setting me up were quite good, and I'm going to take a completely different tack, which is sort of talk about how individual investors or folks who are saving for retirement should think about the financial crisis and respond to it. I'll talk a little bit about how this has affected the stock market recently. Um, my research is squarely focused and has been squarely focused on the habits of individual investors for the last 10 years. This is a slide that I've used for the last decade, and so I'm just putting it up here. It's not new for this talk, um, but I think it's relevant, which is the very first thing that I've pointed out is that folks don't save enough. And that's in some ways at the crux of what's been going on here because the companion of not saving is, of course, borrowing too much. Um, the other points that um, I often talk about, which I'll leave to another talk, is people tend to diversify naively. They chase the action. They trade too much. These are sort of common problems that folks have that are rooted in psychology in how they manage their own investment portfolio. Let me just highlight, though, how this crisis feeds into some of these biases. This is the graph of the personal savings rate over the last, though, since 1952, so the last 50 years or so. Um, back in the 1950s, we were saving at an 8 to 10 percent rate, and you can see about 1980, we stopped saving. Um, the savings rate for some quarters in recent years has actually gone negative, meaning as an economy, we are borrowing more than we're saving. Just to be clear, this is personal savings um, divided by personal disposable income. So this is how much of your disposable income you're actually saving and putting away. Um, clearly, we need to be saving more as, a, as an economy and thinking more about that. Let me just give you some really quick advice on how to do that personally. There's been some really interesting work that's been done by Dick Thaler and Shlomo Bernardsi, what they find is that folks have a really difficult time saving out of their current income. It's really hard for you to cut back on what your current standard of living is and save. A simple way of trying to trick yourself into saving is, in fact, pre-committing to saying your next salary increase will go into your retirement savings. So rather than commit to, from your current income, commit from your future income and say, I'm going to put my next salary increase into my retirement account rather than take home pay. It's um, in programs where this has been instituted at the company level, you can really increase savings rates over the course of five or ten years, and really savings accumulates over the course of decades. It's not what you do this year that can matter, but changing your lifetime behavior. 
The other thing I want to point out is stocks are risky. This is also a slide I've been putting up for the last decade. I'll also give you some slides I use in my uh, uh, MBA classes to highlight this point. Um, higher risk means higher average returns, but stocks with them have a lot of volatility. And a lot of financial advisors will say, well, you can diversify that volatility over time. That is false. It is fallacious that you get time diversification with stocks. It's something that economists have written quite extensively about. What that means is there is generational risk to holding stocks. You can be in a bad generation when you hold stocks. Um, what's the advice given that observation, which I think has solid scientific grounding? Um, you should pick a mix of stocks and bonds that suits your ability to tolerate risk. So that's going to be different from one person to the next because some of us get really nervous when this stuff happens, right? Um, some of you may not be sleeping at night because you have a portfolio heavily invested in stock. I personally have a portfolio that is heavily invested in stock but have not lost a wink of sleep because I went in fully informed about the risk that I was taking. And I've lost a tremendous amount of money, but again, it hasn't bothered me <laughs> tremendously because I was well educated on the risk that I was taking. So knowing what you're getting into can really help um, sort of think about these issues. Um, and that's why I put up the slides here. Um, the points to take away from this are reduce your risk exposure as you approach retirement. One of the big concerns that I have is that financial advisors and some in the finance profession have oversold equities as a way of investing for retirement. And they do bear real risk. You have to decide whether that risk is for you. There's no way to get higher returns without taking on higher risk. But that risk may mean that you have a bad outcome. And so you really have to um, pick an exposure that suits your level of risk tolerance. But as you approach retirement, know you need to be tapping on that. It makes a lot of sense to transfer that money into safer assets. Of course, it's water under the bridge now in terms of what the market's doing if you hadn't done that. But let me talk about things that you can think about going forward in a minute. And finally, money is a tool. It's a means, not an end. So keep in mind that as you make these decisions, that what you're trying to think about is your standard of living in retirement and what you want to have the money for, not the money per se. And so really think about what it is or what your expenses will be to sort of formulate your investment policy. To emphasize stocks are risky, here's the plot of stock returns. A dollar invested in the U.S. market in 19, December of 69, a dollar invested in Japan in December of 69. You can see Japan had a great run going from 69 to December 1989 when the index hit a peak of 40,000. Um, since then, since 1989, almost 20 years now, Japan has had negative returns at times during this period, and currently it's almost 30% down from its high, and this is in nominal terms, in December of 89. That's a 20-year period, so it's clearly false that over 20 years you're going to make a positive return in the stock market. We only need to look to our Japanese neighbors to see that that's the case. The U.S. market, on the other hand, has had an unprecedented bull market which in 2000 started to get to look a lot like the Japanese market, which is to some degree coincidental, to some degree a reflection of integration across international markets. Um, there's been a lot written about that, which I won't go in, but the question is, of course, what is this going to look like going forward, which is what every reporter has been asking me for the last two weeks. Where is the market going to go? Let me just make some observations. Crises are common, okay? So right now we're sort of freaking out about what's going to happen in the financial market. What I did is I culled Time magazine cover stories. This is from 1970. Is this slump necessary? The article says, the unrelenting pressure of the worst bear market since the 1930s. 
has already driven a number of investment houses to the wall, April 1970. September 1974, the big headache. This was OPEC and the oil crisis. Investors have been frightened of an economy that seems out of control. The stock market has scarcely been so shaky since 1929. A Gallup poll published last month found that 46% of adults feared a depression similar to the classic one of the 1930s. The crash of 1987. I remember it well. Um, Stocks dropped by more than 20% in the course of three days, by 17% on one day. Fortunes were conjured out of thin air by fresh-faced traders who created nothing more than paper. So this was, um, again, a crisis that was squarely put on the shoulders of Wall Street for some of the financial derivatives that were being sold at the time. October 1990, with a recession. I want to say we're in a recession, but that's not a strong enough word. In some regions, it's a depression. And, of course, the terrorism of September 2001. NYSE was closed for four days. There was a lot of fear in the economy. The New York Stock Exchange, or Dow Jones Industrials, dropped by 17% when the markets reopened. So crises like this are with lots of precedent. And so what I like to point out, this is the graph of, in log scale, so you can see the bumps, what the Dow, or what the uh, total market in the U.S. looks like since 1926 on the left-hand side and where we are now. This is the dip we're experiencing right now. This was the down that we experienced before in 2000 when the Internet bubble burst. Here's the Great Depression, which, of course, is the granddaddy of all bear markets. Stocks dropped by more than 80% in the course of three years and took 15 years to recover. So the question is, what should we do going forward? Well, just as stocks always have, stocks have higher risk and therefore have a higher average rate of return. If anything, their average expected rate of return now may be higher than it is during normal times because of the fear engendered by markets. But that does not mean that we will be avoiding a bad generational outcome. So it is that risk that you bear by going into the market now that you need to be comfortable with if you choose to invest in stocks. Just to give you a sense of what bear markets look like, over the last 85 years we have had 13 bear markets. If you think of a bear market, which is traditionally defined as a 20% drop from a market peak, you can ask yourself several questions. How long does it take for us to enter a bear market? The average duration from a peak to a 20% drop when we enter a bear market is seven months. This particular one has been nine months. We hit a peak in October of 2007. We're down 20% from that peak in July of this year. So we actually entered the bear market in July. The steep losses that we've suffered currently in the last month or so have merely exacerbated the return that this bear market is experiencing. The duration of a bear market is typically 13 months from start to the low of the bear market over the last 13 bear markets that we experienced. The duration to recovery, where recovery is defined as meeting the high that was previously set, is 40 months, so just shy of four years. The long 183 months is worth pointing out because that's the 15 years that it took to get back to the high of September 1929 It took till December 1944 to recover to that level. That can happen, and that is the risk you bear when you enter the market during these times of tumult. The percent drop in these bear markets is averaging 35%. Currently, at the low, which was October 10th of last week, right, when we went down about 10% in one day, um, we were down 42% from the market high of October 2007. 
So already this bear market is worse than the average bear market. Where do we have to go from here? Again, I'm not one that's going to predict the direction of the market because stock has risk. And I really loathe the financial advisors that you see on CNN and you see on financial news networks that will give you those predictions because they are a dime a dozen. What you as an investor need to know is that stock is a risky investment and you need to be comfortable with taking that risk in your portfolio. And if you're aware of those two issues and choose a mix of stocks and bonds that's right for you, I think you'll be in good stead as an investor. Thanks very much. Thank you, Brad. Our next presenter will be Eric Roshway of the Department of History. Thanks very much, Allens, Brad. Uh, Brad's talk reminds me of what J.P. Morgan is supposed to have said when asked what the market will do, right? It will fluctuate. <laughs> have we been here before? We had a bad banking situation. Some of our bankers had shown themselves either incompetent or dishonest in their handling of the people's funds. They had used the money entrusted to them in speculations and unwise loans. This was, of course, not true in the vast majority of our banks, but it was true in enough of them. That's Franklin Roosevelt's first fireside chat from March of 1933, a week after he came into office. And what he sums up there is the principal similarity between then and now. We have people continuously say the worst systemic banking crisis on our hands since the Great Depression. What caused the banking crises of 1929 to 1933? Historians normally say that there were several shocks that hit an already shaky system. The United States banking system is supposed to have been shaky, uh, unduly so, largely because there was a prevention of branch banking it's usually pointed out that the Canadian banking system survived the Great Depression relatively intact. Nevertheless, the United States also endured a series of shocks, and I'll enumerate them in approximate chronological order. There were defaults owing to the agricultural depression, which began before the Great Depression and lasted through much of the 1920s. There were defaults of overseas borrowers who owed the United States money going back to World War I and who were unable to pay back their debts after U.S. capital exports dried up beginning in around 1928. There were defaults of speculative borrowers who were unable to pay back the money they had borrowed to bet on the stock market after the stock market crashed. There was a drying up of and defaults on consumer borrowing, which had driven the economy of the 1920s. Household consumer debt doubled during the decade of the 1920s as Americans learned for the first time to buy big-ticket items on credit, to buy automobiles, to buy refrigerators, to buy things not necessarily because they need them, but because they like them. There were defaults, increasingly, of local governments going into the early 30s, which were unable to make their poor relief bills because relief of unemployment was then a local rather than a national matter. There were withdrawals of savings by unemployed people who did not have recourse to unemployment insurance and had no other recourse than to draw down their bank deposits. And finally, and most profoundly, there were the panic withdrawals of savings by people who saw the banks becoming shaky and who, without deposit insurance, had no safer recourse than their mattresses for their money. It took about four years for this problem to become entirely clear in the way that I've enumerated it. During that time, you had a Federal Reserve System and a Treasury Department that were devoted to the notion that the failures in the system were necessary sufferings, 
that had to be born so that the economy could restore itself to health. And so it was not till January of 1932, it would be uncharitable to say that this was because it was an election year, but it is not entirely uh, unconnected. It was not until January of 1932 that Herbert Hoover and Congress finally cooperated to establish a plan to solve the problem. They created something called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, or RFC, which was capitalized at $500 million and authorized to issue a further $1.5 billion in notes, whose purpose was to lend to distressed banks, also to railroads, because railroad bonds were an important part of the finance system in those days, but principally to banks. Some months later, it became clear that lending to banks, based on their distressed assets uh, as collateral, on the terms the RFC was prepared to give, was not going to be adequate to solve the problem of the crisis. It also became clear by that time, by the summer of 1932, that Hoover was not likely to win the public trust on behalf of the banking system with his behavior. This grew most apparent when Hoover's head of the RFC, a man called Charles Dawes, quit the RFC so that he could run the Central Republic Bank and Trust of Chicago, whereupon the Central Republic Bank and Trust of Chicago received an enormous RFC bailout loan, apparently at Herbert Hoover's personal insistence. This did not look good especially when the city of Chicago uh, shortly before had been refused an RFC loan to bail it out. It looked very much as though Hoover's bailout plan was there to help his high-flying friends and not ordinary citizens. Throughout the remainder of his presidency, Herbert Hoover resisted various measures that were urged upon him, including uh, an audit of the banking system. He also resisted buying bank equity, which he thought would lead naturally to socialism. Both of those measures were immediately adopted by the Roosevelt administration in March of 1933, with a more than cooperative Congress uh, in the Emergency Banking Act of 1933. So Roosevelt, as you probably know, declared a national bank holiday, audited the banks, reopened those that were certified as stable, and the RFC immediately began investing in bank equity to try to recapitalize the banks. If, as I've been talking, you've been thinking about parallels to the current situation, this is a route about where we are now. So naturally, you'll want to know what happens next. Over the next year or so, the RFC invested slightly over a billion dollars in American banks, which amounted ultimately to around a third of the bank equity that was then outstanding in the United States. They very occasionally used their power to punish bank executives, as Alan suggests we now should, occasionally sacking people who they thought were incompetent. Also, as Alan seemed not to like, using their power to limit executive pay, but that was very popular at the time. Thus recapitalized, American banks were supposed to start lending again. They didn't. So for some months, Roosevelt's RFC chief, a man called Jesse Jones, hectored the bank, saying that they should stop being so cautious, that we wanted the lending that we were paying for. Finally, exasperated, the RFC went into business for itself, prepared to offer loans to businesses which had been unable to get loans on the private market. And if they were creditworthy, RFC would lend to them. Whereupon Jones and the RFC found that the bankers weren't just being chicken. There were not enough creditworthy borrowers out there. There were some exceptions. Uh, farmers were very successful at borrowing from the RFC to buy new equipment. Uh, small business was relatively successful at borrowing from the RFC on an ongoing basis. And in fact, a piece of the RFC that remains with us today is the Small Business Administration. But broadly, in terms of large loans, the RFC discovered that it wasn't that the banks needed recapitalizing, that there was a larger problem in the American economy, what we hear called now the real economy. And so they had, they came to decide, the Roosevelt administration, to, to stimulate demand. Now, 
In the past six weeks or so, we've covered the ground that Hoover and Roosevelt covered in four years or so. We've moved very rapidly from doing nothing to lending money to banks to buying bank stocks. We want now to see if that will be enough, as it was not in the 1930s. There's some chance that it will be, based on the history. We have significant advantages over our predecessors. You can adjust for generations. That might be your parents, grandparents, great-parents, grandparents. First, we still have the New Deal, which, of course, they didn't have. So we have the FDIC. In those days when banks failed, people were out of luck. You had runs on banks. Now, giant bank like Washington Mutual fails. Depositors are insured. The FDIC brokers a fairly peaceful and orderly transition of ownership to J.P. Morgan Chase. The only people who are hurt are stockholders, and as Alan says, we want to hurt them, so that's fine. <laughs> we have unemployment insurance. People going out of work aren't immediately going to place the same amount of pressure on their bank savings as people did in the 1930s. We now have old age benefits provided by Social Security, so we don't, again, have that kind of pressure on banking stocks as people might have in the old days or that kind of pressure on families to support the elderly as we would have. So we have these automatic government payments that kind of help even these problems out. Second, in addition to those things, we now have a restructured and more powerful Federal Reserve System, which was something that emerged from New Deal banking laws of 1933 and 1935. And third, we have, of course, the experience and memory of that era, which has taught us not to wait four years, not to wait until unemployment is at 23 or 25 percent, what's a couple of percentage points when you're up that high, to act in a situation like this. And so there's some reason to believe that we're better off than they were. There's one warning I want to close on. Economic historians, Ben Bernanke among them, like to warn us that in the end, in the New Deal, the fiscal stimulus to which they turned after the failure of RFC lending was not sufficient either to bail the United States out of the Great Depression. And yet, it's also worth noting, through the 1930s, right after 1933 and through Roosevelt's first two terms, the economy was growing at a relatively rapid rate, 8% uh, on average over his first term, 10% on average later. Um, unemployment was falling. So something was making the economy work better. What was it? Mostly, these scholars agree, it was monetary stimulus. Because in Roosevelt's first year in office in 1933, he devalued the dollar. And this helps to attract overseas investments to the United States. That investment kept flooding in over the decade of the 1930s as Europe became a less and less attractive place to, advance, uh, to invest as uh, Hitler advanced over uh, large chunks of it. This movement of gold to the United States, owing to American monetary policy and external circumstances, is sometimes called the golden avalanche, so dramatic was it, in um, raising American gold stocks, and is usually credited with providing dramatic stimulus to the American economy through the New Deal. Now, if you know anything, uh, as Alan has sort of hinted at, about our present situation with respect to the rest of the world, a dramatic inflow of investment seems very unlikely, so if the plan we have now, as, we, uh, as the plan that we have now today as of uh, October 17th, 2008, doesn't solve the problem, we probably cannot rely entirely on the lessons of the 1930s to save ourselves. We may indeed need fiscal stimulus that goes well beyond the New Deal. So thank you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, we will now take uh, questions. Uh, please ask your questions to specific panelists, and I will have to repeat them for the uh, taping. So again, please keep them brief. 
uh, to summarize as opposed to verbatim, uh, some economic historians have seen in the past uh, uh, a good creative destruction coming out of past crises. Do you see anything like that uh, appearing in this crisis? Uh, yeah, I think there will be creative destruction in, in the financial sector. I mean, usually, often we think of that in terms of, you know, are there going to be inventions in industry or you know, n new inventions coming along there? Um, the difference in the financial sector, I guess, is that it does have this in inherent fragility and lack of transparency, there's asymmetries of information. And in some sense, the innovators are always trying to get one step ahead of the regulators and the people who are trying to make sure that extremely risky bets uh, are not being taken. So um, part of the reason we are where we are right now is that there's been rather too much creativity uh, in the financial sector, and, and uh, 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 it's, it's now going through a cycle of, of destruction. But, uh, you know... Uh, in this particular case, I think you know there'll be uh, there'll be a recovery of sorts in the financial sector. Financial sector, it'll have to shrink, and it will have to take on board uh, new methods, which may be uh, less rather than more profitable, but hopefully also less risky. Uh, the question is, uh, as a result of technological changes in the transfer of information, particularly the internet, how do you see this affecting the volatility and stability of the markets? Uh, I don't, I mean, as an economic historian, I can sort of put my hat on and say, well, you know, uh, nothing's new under the sun in that we, you know, we had the telegraph and we had communication tools, uh, which were first and foremost used by people in financial markets and people trading to commodities back in the 19th century. So I think there was a lot of communication back then, given, given the constraints, though. Um, and uh, I don't see it necessarily enhancing volatility. I think volatility right now is, is driven by other factors, not just communication. It's driven by the fact that everybody is scared and there's extremely imperfect in information. Uh, as, as I think Brad mentioned, though, there's a, a tremendous amount of correlation across markets today that's probably been there for 10 or 20 years, which hadn't been seen previously and maybe reflects market integration. To some extent, that may be a little bit of a, a stabilizing factor in that now when you hear bad information about one market, you don't just pick up all your money and wire it over to another market because you know that one's going to crash too. <laughs> so, uh, everything seems to go up and down together. Uh, so... Um, you know, I, I think there may be, uh, there may be some, uh, uh, some amelioration there in terms of the communication. You know, there's a big, strong common factor. So there's, there's no place to hide except treasuries. So, and, and on that, I, I do want to say that um, perhaps a little bit uh, to try to push back against the, the fear that uh, the U.S. is in a particularly bad position here. We're in a bad position, uh, but lots of other countries are in even worse positions, um, and they have bank banking sectors that are multiples of their GDP, in terms of uh, their, their balance sheets, and that was a point that Paul made in his comments. And um, the U.S., despite uh, uh, many mistakes, perhaps, in, in recent years and, and uh, uh, reckless deficits and, and other problems, still has a reputation as, um, as a safe haven. And, you know, if we ever blow that, Alexander Hamilton will be spinning in his grave. But, you know, uh, despite the fact, you know, that we have this uh, huge debt, it's not a bigger debt, as big a debt as a percentage of our economy as many other developed economies as Japan or European countries. We've had a stable currency that hasn't gone through many of the gyrations that uh, other developed countries have gone through in their long history. And you have to look back to a long history, including world wars and the Great Depression. So we do have a reputation. I'm not saying we can't blow it. But we do have a reputation such that when this crisis hit, money flowed to the United States. It went to Treasury bills. It drove the yield down to 0, 0.0 something. But ultimately, that does tell us something, that we have something to fall back on there. Uh, so uh, just trying to give you a silver lining.
There was a question here. The question is whether the, the day of reckoning is being postponed uh, because you can't really recognize what these assets are worth. Um, that, and there was another second part, was there? Well, that, that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure they're going to become any less transparent, so I'm not sure what the gain is of, of postponing the reckoning. Uh, in, in some sense, what the Swiss did, uh, I think, yesterday was to, to try and create a bad bank. Into, they, did, they did a top. They did a Paulson. And the, the, both all politicians, left and right, are furious right now. Uh, but they've just basically taken all the bad stuff off the UBS balance sheet and put it in a bad bank. Maybe it'll pay off. Maybe it'll be worthless. Um, uh, the, but the question is always, what are you going to pay for that? I mean, if there's something bad on your balance sheet, you, you, can make it, you can take it off your balance sheet, you know, in a second just by writing it off, right? And, uh, you know, maybe you just put it in some other place with a write-off and you can hold it to maturity and maybe it'll pay off and then you'll have an upside later. But there's nothing, nothing to prevent you writing it off for now and, and then, you know, there's no, more, there's no more downside, there's no more fear on the part of you and your investors about what's going on there. You know there's some upside, you just don't know what it is. And I think we have to get through that transition. And it's scary for Wall Street executives because, uh, you know, a lot of their compensation is tied up in the stock of their banks. And if that becomes, you know, valued at something close to zero or negative, well, zero, uh, they're hurt. You know, we can't go back and retroactively change their compensation and other, I mean, we can fire them without cause, which might be another reason to try to get on their boards. Fire them for cause, uh, in which case they don't get their bonuses. But we can't go back and, and, and you know, uh, renegotiate their contracts. Um, but one thing we can do is uh, ensure that the full value of all the losses that have been created through this reckless lending uh, fall on, on these stockholders uh, before we go forward and start putting in our own equity. And uh, I just worry that we haven't properly done that. Uh, the question is concerned with possible manipulation and connivance, I think, between the Treasury and uh, the Federal Reserve, perhaps, and, and some of the banks. And he wants to know which banks, which private banks are uh, uh, in the Federal Reserve. Is that right? Principal shareholders, Principal shareholders of the Federal Reserve. Right, well, um, well, the Federal Reserve isn't a private corporation in the sense of being owned by, by, by private owners. It's a, it's a government corporation, which is... Uh, at arm's length from Congress and the White House, perhaps that's a good thing, um, and, and doesn't have any, any direct uh, private shareholders. And uh, to the extent that it makes a profit, say, on, on seniorage or, or money printing or on various capital gains and losses on its portfolio, uh, those are ultimately uh, remitted to the Treasury or, or, or as we're seeing more, more now, uh, bailed out by the Treasury. Uh, so it's, it's not really a, a private institution with any direct private owning interests like that. Uh, banks are members of the Federal Reserve in the sense that they have access to its credit lines if they're depository institutions that satisfy uh, certain uh, requirements, like bank holding companies. That's why Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley became bank holding companies by you know, <laughs> suddenly saying, oh, we've got 10 depositors in Utah. That makes us like Wells Fargo. A nice trick. Um, so yeah, if you, if you satisfy certain characteristics or with a nod and a wink, you get into the uh, under the Fed's uh, umbrella in terms of being, having to be able, being able to access the discount window and other, other credit lines. But it doesn't have any direct political interference uh, in, in the sense of having controlling shareholders um, uh, from, from the private sector. To give Professor Taylor a rest, are there any questions for either of our other two panelists? <laughs> Bernd? Are there any countries that have fared better than the United States over the last century or so in terms of handling financial crisis, and if so or if not, what were the principles that they employed which uh, gave them an advantage? 
One, one of the things that people often point out with respect to the Great Depression is that it was more severe in the United States than elsewhere. Uh, so there's an example right there of other countries doing better. I alluded to the Canadian banking system uh, in the talk, which was structured in such a way that made it better able to bear shocks than the U.S. banking system that was owing to branch banking. But the, the thing that really seems to make uh, the United States suffer more than other countries uh, through much of the Great Depression was hewing to the gold standard. Uh, countries seem to have done better if they went off the gold standard sooner uh, in the Depression, and uh, that seems not to be a problem today. So we, we, we learned that lesson, uh, and uh, if, there's, if, there's, if there's a subsequent lesson that we can, that we can learn, I'm not, I'm not sure I know what it is, but Alan might. <laughs> I'll yield. Okay. <laughs> the question was what happened to the bank stock that the RFC bought, right? Uh, they began to turf it back to the banks in 1935, so just two years after they started buying it in the first place. Uh, and they, they, they got rid of mo about 25% of their holdings uh, in that year. I'm not sure how long it took them to wind up the entire program. Every, every question about the Great Depression is complicated. What? Did we make a profit? Uh, yeah, they, they, they tended to do rather well out of these investments. Um, you know, always invest in a recovering economy, apparently, is the lesson of that story. Um, the, um, every question about what happened to Great Depression, the New Deal institutions is always complicated by the fact that the war comes along and messes things up. So the RFC is repurposed as a war financing corporation uh, during the war, and it thus outlasts the Great Depression rather considerably and isn't done away with entirely until 1953. So... Uh, anything else it would have had would have, would have been gone by then, but they, they basically got rid of the stockholding program beginning in the middle of the 30s. If I may make a friend, friendly amendment to uh, Professor Roshway's comments, when he said the war comes along and messes things up, he meant specifically it messes up the attempt to analyze the effect of one particular policy or shock because there all of a sudden a lot of other things going on. It spoils, it spoils it, your it, neat it, historical experiments, yeah, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Another question. Yeah. The question for Professor Rashwa is, in regards to the recent bailout bail, uh, bill, uh, does the Secretary of Treasury, have, has he been given too many powers? And maybe as an amendment, how might you reform those powers? That doesn't sound like a historian question. It sounds like a moral citizen kind of question. So if you want me to add, answer that question, you know, as a citizen... Uh, I certainly think the original TARP bill gave the Secretary of the Treasury way too many powers, and that's why the original TARP proposal was dead on arrival, right? There now seem to be uh, far many more checks on what he can do, um, although, as, as Alan indicates, the real test of that would be if he had to bail out Goldman Sachs. What would that look like? Uh, we, we don't really know. Brad, would you like to add to that? Well, I appreciate uh, Eric's sort of distinguishing opinion from scientific fact, because we like to view ourselves as scientists. Yes. But my opinion is that, much the same as Eric's, that the original bill gave far too much power. And though there's oversight currently, um, the impression that the general public has is a concern that many economists have, which is many of the folks in policy decisions have ties that are awfully strong to Wall Street. Uh, if uh, you were... Uh, Secretary of Treasury or Chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, what financial reform would be first on your list? Um, I guess I'd like to see um, higher capital ratios, so basically a restriction on leverage, uh, at least within, for, I mean, 
I'd like there to be a, a sort of ring fence around narrow banks. I don't mean absolutely narrow. They can only invest in, in treasury securities. But I'd like there to be a sense that there is a system which provides the fundamental payments and credit system for our economy uh, that we will protect and that we'll, we'll have FDIC and other coverage. But we will have to be very serious about uh, ring fencing it and making sure that it can't get into bed with off-balance sheet vehicles and, and hedge funds and other things and that we draw a line there. I'm not saying we have to go back to Glass-Steagall or something extremely draconian, uh, but we'll have to decide what we are going to insure and what we're not going to insure. And I know there's a time inconsistency problem that comes along then, because when the thing that you've said that you're not going to insure blows up, uh, do you have the courage to say, no, you're on your own? But as long as we make sure that those private speculative vehicles are just off in their own space and that they're you know, maybe a rich person's plaything and we can just let them go, Fine, but that will mean that the, the piece that you want to protect, you'll have to protect carefully, make sure it can't get into um, potentially uh, combustible counterparty relationships with the unprotected bit, and, uh, and you know, just, just try and make sure that it's narrow enough. The, the question is, uh, Professor Barber mentioned that the United States as an economy or as a whole does not save enough uh, given the current situation, where is a safe place to save? I don't know. Are, are you taking commissions on, <laughs> on, on this kind of advice? No, but I'll tell you that if you have less than $100,000 in an FDIC insured or 250000 now, um, that that's a very safe place to save, and they have laddered CDs, products that are also insured. Um, so those are probably the safest place to, to, to put your money where you can assure yourself that you won't have nominal losses. So the question was, is there any practical difference between having your money in a savings account or a treasury instrument? The treasury instruments are different, but generally the interest rates that you'll earn are going to be fairly similar. But safety is the same? Uh, safety is the same. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for coming. I'd like to thank our panelists, and I would like to thank our co-sponsors. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.